The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Lord, it's a terrifying thing to be in Gethsemane and know what the hours hold. They were just unspeakably terrible. And yet, you invite us to come. And for the joy that was set before you, you endured Gethsemane and you endured the cross. And surely that's how you mean for us to do it. So teach us from how you set up this evening in Gethsemane what you were up to for us. Come and be our teacher now from this text, I pray, through Christ. Amen. So let's make the connection with this morning. On Mount uh, Carmel with Elijah, we saw that uh, the prayed-for outcome in verse 37 was this. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know, that these men gathered here may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So God is God, and what it means for God to be God is that he he rules the human heart. He turns it back. Know this. That's what he wanted you to know from 1 Kings 18.37. So, if if any of you, and I presume it's most of you, were blind to the beauty of Christ, and now you see Christ as your supreme treasure, God did that. If any of you were dead in your sins with no spiritual taste for Christ at all, and now you love him and savor him, delight in his fellowship and his favor and his service, God did that. If once you loved your possessions more than Christ, loved your family more than Christ, loved your mortal life more than Christ, and now you sing with Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go, This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. God did that. Are there any hearts of stone in London? Or in your family? I have five kids. They're not kids anymore. The youngest is 22, the oldest is 44. I have five children, and two of them are not with Christ. So these illustrations I'm giving here are very, very precious, relevant to me, okay? Are there any hearts of stone in London, in your family? God says, I will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Parenthesis, it's no comfort to me as a father or a pastor, it's no comfort to me to suggest that my children are in charge of their hearts rather than God. 
If God turns the heart, there's hope. I can cry out to him, and he can raise the dead. When the rich young ruler walked away, and Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to get into heaven. And the disciples throw up their hands and say, well, then who can be saved? And his answer was, nobody. With man, it is impossible. So if you say that the human heart is sovereign, nobody's getting saved. Are there any uncircumcised hearts in this city? No love to God at all. God says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God. That's what I pray. Are there any stiff-necked, disobedient hearts in this city with zero submission to God's law? God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Are there any men in this city in bondage to the devil, doing the devil's will? Here's what God says. I grant repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth so that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Are there any women in this city with no interest in hearing the gospel at all? God says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's the carryover from 1 Kings 18.37. I am God and I Turn men back. So when Paul was in Corinth, massive, sophisticated, pagan city with no churches. You think you think London is unchurched? None. None in Corinth. God came to him in a vision at night. Jesus came. Here's what he said to him. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. Because I have many people in this city. They're mine. They're my elect. You go speak the word of God My sheep hear my voice, I call them, I raise them, I keep them, I give them life. Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. Go do your work, Paul, I'll do mine. That's a thrilling way to do evangelism. So in Elijah's day, 7,000, because I kept them for myself. Corinth, who knows how many Paul was able to find church grew. He wrote them two letters. London today has its remnant and many more to be gathered in. When we sheep that are already in the fold begin to tighten our fences out of fear or despair or indifference, 
Jesus says to us from John 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Don't you ever, ever start thinking, it's just us. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. That's a lot of sovereign promises. I know them. I have them. I call them. I bring them. They hear. They come. I give them life. Nobody will turn their hearts back. Nobody can pluck them out of my hand. I turn the hearts of people. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, what what I want to focus on in this session is what it cost for God to righteously and freely do that act of mercy for rebel traitors who ought to be hanged by the neck forever until dead. And actually bring them without punishment into his family. What did that cost for God to turn the hearts of millions upon millions of people over these last 2,000 years and who knows how many in the days to come. What did it cost? And, and you all know the answer to that at, at one level. I'm going to show you what you know and, and then draw in something that may not be as obvious. I am the good shepherd. It's John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what it cost. So if you're going to gather sheep, if you're going to move through the world and speak the voice of Jesus so that the sheep hear the voice, respond, call, come, be a part of his family, the shepherd had to lay down his life for the sheep. So that's the first answer to what it cost. By your blood, you ransom people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It costs your, your blood. What he paid was the price of the new covenant. Remember that phrase? Luke, this, this cup that I'm holding up here is the new covenant in my blood. So his blood bought the new covenant. And what's the essence of the new covenant? I'll take out the heart of stone. I'll put it in the heart of flesh. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. I'll forgive all your sins. That's the new covenant. So the price of the new covenant by which we are changed from hard to lovers of Jesus is his blood. Now, in this text, what we see, we're at Matthew 26, 36 to 46, what we see is a, a, a story that has a double battle in it. So if I were to title this, it would I think I'd call it the double battle of Gethsemane. There's a double battle. Now, the first battle is obvious, and we, most people would preach on this. Namely, it's the battle of Jesus to persevere in obedience and submission to the cross. 
In other words, this is a battle to get to the place where the price can be paid. If he avoids the cross, everything fails. For the mission of God through Christ to succeed, he's got to make it in obedience to the cross a few hours from now at at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. And it's not obvious. As you watch Gethsemane unfold, that, that he's going to make it. So that's one battle. Jesus battling to get to the, the cross where he can buy 1 Kings 18.37 for all of God's people. We don't deserve it. It has to be purchased for us, this turning of our hearts to God. There's another battle going on, and it's the battle to draw you, or let's just say for now, Peter, James, and John into his battle. That's the surprising part to me. As I worked over this text again and again, trying to think, what, how does this text work? What's going on here? What's the main thrust of this text, I could not help but see two battles being being fought. And Jesus is drawing the disciples in to his battle to fight with him. And he, he didn't have to do it. He could have done it another way. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to walk through one time and look at his battle and walk through the second time and look at our battle or the battle of Peter, James, and John and why, why them. Verse 37, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. In other words, sorrow can be so heavy, it can be deadly. And deadly in the sense of I might become so paralyzed with sorrow and fear that I abort this mission. Death is what he's aiming at. So the threat of the sorrow unto death is the sorrow might be so deathly heavy, it would keep me from it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a threat at all. My soul is sorrowful unto death. He cries out. How does he fight the battle? He's got this sorrow that's weighing on him, about to crush him down, perhaps to paralyze him from obedience or to throw him off the path. And he says in verse 39, Father, my Father, So he's going to fight with prayer. He's going to cry out to God, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So his first request is, If it's possible, Father, grant that the cup... Now, I think the cup here is, is... is the 18 hours of horror he's about to face, the totality of it. The physical torture, the abandonment by his disciples, the turning away of his father, the bearing of the the wrath of God, the, the whole 
horrible what he's about to walk into. And his, his request is, acting out of his own human, ordinary, understandable, sinless distaste for pain, is there another way? Could the, could the cup pass without drinking it? If, if you can't, I'll, I'll do it. But can it? So his first strategy in the battle was to ask that he not have to drink the cup. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, he's going to go back and find them sleeping. We're going to leave that aside because that's, that's another battle. I just want to keep following Jesus through his battle. So he comes to a second prayer time. And it's worded differently. Did you notice when it was being read? Verse 42 is different from verse 39. 39 is the first prayer to the Father, the first battle strategy. And the second prayer says, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, that makes no sense in relation to the first prayer. The first prayer was not drinking it is how it passes away from me. Here, it passes away from me by drinking it. This cannot, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, well, that's that's a funny way to say it if the first prayer is just being repeated. It's not just being repeated. Something has happened between the first and the second way of doing battle. In the first way is, I would like victory by not having to drink it. The second way is, I would like victory by drinking it. And I'm going to need your help, oh God, for me to be obedient to your will and your cause and mission to triumph through my drinking it because in myself, I cannot do this. So the, the battle front, the, the, the battle um, phase in the, in the warfare here is different in verse 42 than it was in verse 39. Battle line number one, verse 39, keep the cup of death and suffering from me if possible. Battle line number two, as I drink the cup, as necessary, don't let me fail to do your will or accomplish your mission. Now, what happened between prayer number one and prayer number two? There are two pointers that I see. Luke 22.43 and Hebrews 5.7. Take those one at a time. Here's, here's what Luke says. So, in Luke's account... After the first prayer, we read this. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Matthew doesn't make any mention of this angel at all. But he tips 
us off, something has changed between prayer one and prayer two. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. What would that angel have said to the Son of God? The Father wants me to remind you there is no other way. So your prayer not to drink it will not be answered. But I am here to strengthen you. And Jesus is going to say in just a minute, the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. He, he meant his and theirs. He didn't have any different flesh than we do. Same skin, same weariness, same hatred for pain. So this angel, however he's doing it, is strengthening the Son of God. That is an awesome thought when you think of your own warfare. Like if the Son needs an angel to help him, you think you're going to get along by yourself? You're not. My son, there is no other way. So now the prayer becomes, all right, if the cup cannot pass unless I drink it, which is now the fact. It will pass, it will pass by drinking it. Do your will. Succeed, give me success in this. I don't want to abort this mission. Now here's Hebrews 5, 7. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. He was heard because of his reverence. God answered that prayer. Some people read this and they read that and say, well, he didn't save him from death. So that prayer wasn't answered. He died. Well, why would you jump to the conclusion, though, that the way Jesus wanted to be saved from death was by not dying. That's a superficial jump. No. There, there are two ways that Jesus at this second level in the battle wants desperately to be saved from death. One, the fear of death could make him disobedient. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Don't let my deep desire not to die as an ordinary human being in my flesh, don't let it get me off the path because death would win. Death would win. I wouldn't be saved from death. I'd be destroyed by death if I lived. And the second way he gets saved from death is that when he goes into death, he doesn't stay dead. So I want, oh God, now that I know, I must drink this in just a few hours. The most horrible test anybody's ever had in the history of the world. I want you to give me success. To get there by not being disobedient. And when I'm there, you bring me out. And death will not win in both senses. I will be saved from death while I'm on my way to death, 
by not disobeying. I'll be saved from death when I rise on Easter Sunday morning. And therefore, Hebrews 5, 7 is gloriously true. God answered his loud cries. I will save you from death. Death did not defeat you. It didn't defeat you on the front end. It didn't defeat you on the back end. You conquered death on the way to it and after it. I think that's the sense of Hebrews 5, 7. So he did die. He did. But death didn't destroy his obedience, and death didn't destroy his life in the end. So that's the first battle, and Jesus won it. He made it all the way through. He, he did with his flesh, which so did not want pain, because that's what flesh is. It doesn't enjoy pain. He did with his flesh what he meant for us now to learn. And this is battle number two the disciples. You know, sometimes we are so familiar with a story in the Bible that we don't pause to think how differently it might have gone. We kind of assume that's the way it happened. Of course it happened that way. Well, to me, it's just not of course at all here. For example, what if, what if Jesus with the 11 had left the, the uh, Last Supper made their way to Gethsemane, and Jesus knows everything that's coming, and he says to the eleven, you sit here and wait. Don't let anybody disturb me. I'm going over there and do my battle. And he goes 50 yards away, out of earshot, and he does exactly what we just saw him do. Two levels of battle, triumph. He's done. He comes back. Judas is on the way. He sees the torches. He comes, and everything proceeds as it does. Why not that way? Why take Peter and the sons of Zebedee away from the eleven and with him where they can hear him and test them? Why? Verse 36, he tells eight of them, you sit here while I go there to pray. So he doesn't even tell the eight to pray. Doesn't even tell them to watch. Doesn't tell them to be vigilant. Just stay here. And then three of them, Peter is named, verse 37, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Is there any meaning in that? Why'd you name Peter and not James and John? They don't even get named. Keep that in mind. Maybe, maybe more will show up about that later. So Peter, James, and John are taken away from the 11 and are told, remain here. This is verse 38. Remain here and watch with me. Watch. We're Stay awake. Be vigilant. Remain here while I go pray. And evidently, he, he doesn't go too far. He wants them to hear, at least part of it. 
So stay awake, be spiritually vigilant. Huge forces are at work tonight. You have no idea what you are up against. If you don't stay awake, if you don't pray, you're going to plunge into temptation that you will regret the rest of your lives, maybe for eternity, unless he intervenes. He comes back. Verse 40, he says to Peter, that's the second time Peter is named. So Peter gets named when he takes them and chooses them to come with him, and Peter gets named when he rebukes them. And, and James and John never get named. And there's three of these. He comes back three times. Hmm. Maybe so. Maybe there's a correlation with Peter's three denials. Maybe... Maybe this is about not only saying, Peter, you're going to deny me, deny me three times in a few hours, but I'm giving you three opportunities to prepare yourself not to do that. And you're going to sleep through them all. So you're not going to fail once. You're going to fail twice. I think there's some serious lessons here on how to fight against denying Jesus, how to fight the fight of faith that Peter fails twice. So he says to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Then Jesus gets more specific in verse 41 as to why this wakefulness is so important. Verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Okay, that's the reason I'm telling you to stay awake, watch, pray, watch, pray, because otherwise you're going to go into, into, you know, it's not just going to come at you, you're going to sink into it. It's going to conquer you if you don't watch and pray. And then he tells them why. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You are about to face the most serious, difficult, threatening temptation and test of your life. You're going to sleep in preparation for that. Remember uh, when Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me three times, and Peter said, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. That's verse 35. All the disciples joined in and said, we, we too, We're, we'll die before we'll deny you. Well, they slept three times in spite of three Stay awake, stay awake. And the result, verse 56, not on your, not on your, it's, it's beyond our text, verse, verse 56 is, then all the disciples left him and fled. That's what you get for sleeping. That's how much power you have if you just sleep through the war. I mean, Jesus fought the battle and he won. What were they doing while he was fighting the battle? They were sleeping. Men, you do not want to be that kind of person. Sleeping through the greatest events in the history of the world. When the God of the universe has said to you, you need to stay awake, really. If you knew what was coming here, you would need to stay 
awake. Be a vigilant man. Don't be a lazy man. Don't be a slacker. Get up. Do your work. Come home. Do your work. Get a vision. Be intentional. Don't sleep your life away. If you're lazy, kill it. Put it to death. I mean, it is, it is remarkable to me here that when he says the flesh is weak and the spirit is willing, he's not mainly talking about sex. He's talking about weariness. <laughs> You're just too tired to read your Bible, too tired to lead the family in any kind of moral enterprise, too tired to go to church, too tired to talk to anybody. You just I just want to go home and sit. Well, you will be a sitting duck for the devil if you yield to that kind of life style. It comes a third time. Verse 45. Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So in these last minutes in Gethsemane, Jesus wins and the disciples fail. They lose. He won the battle of Gethsemane. They lost the battle of Gethsemane. But don't you agree that it's really clear that both from Matthew's standpoint and Jesus' standpoint, this whole evening was set up to teach Matthew, I mean to teach Peter and James and John something. Otherwise, he'd just go off and do his battle. That he invited them in to Gethsemane. Come with me. Come watch with me. I want you at my side as I gain my victory over the fear of death. We don't help Jesus, but we obey the glorious privilege of, I'm not going to win this without you. I mean to include you in my triumphs by including you in my tests. I'm showing you how to do it. And I think it's for us, not just Peter, James, and John. It may, it may be, I mean, I don't know the answer for why he chose three and left eight. I don't know that. I'd like, if you know, tell me. My, here's my guess. Over in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, when Paul first goes down to meet the apostles, he said, Cephas and James and John, who were reputed to be pillars in the church. That's a little phrase there, which gives you a glimpse into what these men became. They were the three main leaders in the church at Jerusalem. They were the three main uh, apostles. Perhaps then, if you're going to have a ministry that is pushed out in front of others, 
you're going to go through Gethsemane or, or something like it. I mean, all eight of those needed this lesson, and surely they were going to hear about it all, but he chose. I'm going to put you three guys right up against the devil, right up against the, the threat of your own weakness, right up against what I'm dealing with here in this most difficult hour of my life. You are drawn in as close, and you will be made idiots because you're sleeping through the battle, and I've already told you you're going to fail tomorrow morning. So, don't take up the mantle of leadership too readily. I just preached last week at our commencement services at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and I chose my text from 2 Corinthians 12. Paul had been given these extraordinary revelations. He had been entered, he'd entered into paradise. He said, in the body or out of the body, I don't know. I just know I saw things I can't even talk about. They were so glorious. And then here comes the sad, necessary truth. In order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to keep me from being conceited. That's what it will cost you to see God. If you have the least inclination to pride or the least inclination to want more of Christ, those two together require a thorn or something like it. And here, these men were exposed to the kind of counsel and the kind of test that the others weren't exposed to. Jesus is about to do the most significant thing that's ever been done in the history of the world. What happened on Good Friday morning and Easter were the, were the two events which have had a greater influence in the world than any other two events ever. You talk about a man who makes a difference. He was about to make the greatest difference in the world. He would bear the wrath of God. He would become a curse for them. He would be smitten by the Father. He would bear our sins in his body. He would give his life a ransom. He would die for the ungodly. He would rise from the dead. He would pour out his spirit. He would turn the hearts of millions. He would justify them. He would adopt them. And he would give them eternal life. He would conform them to his image. And he would take them into everlasting joy with the Father in heaven. That's the greatest thing that's ever happened. The purchase of all of that happened in the next few hours against all the powers of, of darkness. And he invited them into that battle. And the point of Gethsemane, I think, is is therefore twofold. It's, look what I have achieved in the way I have fought to get to the cross by prayer, by subduing my flesh, by laying hold on divine help, and instructing you the whole while to stand with me and do it my way and have the same triumphs that I have. And we're to learn he succeeded and they failed, but surely... Surely the lesson isn't 
okay, you're all doomed to failure. You're all doomed to failure in your temptations and your tests. Just get used to it. That's, that's surely not why this story is in the Bible. I think it is there to encourage us in this sense. I mean, encourage us in our failures in this sense. If you say, okay, they wiped out. I mean, they all left Jesus. Why is there a church? Why are we here? What, what turned around? And the answer is Jesus didn't fail. He bought them in a few hours from sin, from hell, and He prayed for them that they would turn. That's Luke twenty-two thirty-two. He says to Peter's face, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, if you stopped right there, you'd say, but he did fail. No, no. He said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you turn, strengthen your brothers. Not if you turn. When you turn, I turn hearts. I have prayed for you. I do not see your failure in Gethsemane is the end of the line, Peter. No way. I have a purpose for you. I'm going to build my church on your testimony. So I've prayed for you, and you're coming back. So I don't think the failure in Gethsemane is meant to tell us, okay, guys, let's just go out and be thankful that Jesus succeeded and we don't, and we're doomed to failure, and so there. No way. He meant to show us how to fight, to show us how desperately we need to overcome the weakness of our flesh, how we need to pray, how we need to be vigilant, how we need not to be lazy men, but fighters and warriors, and that when we fail, He has paid the price and He has prayed. Isn't it an awesome thought that Jesus is praying for you now? It says so in Romans 8. He is interceding for the saints. And if you say, what does he pray? I think he prays the same thing he did for Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, which you will because you're mine, strengthen your brothers. Let's close like this. The last scene is... Judas showing up in verse 45 and 46. And you should ask yourself the question, at least it sheds light on a lot to me to ask this question. Okay, he's just found them sleeping three times. They're asleep when he comes. He sees the torches off in the distance. Judas, he knows what's coming. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? Is he going to say to Peter, James, and John, my adversaries are coming. May the Lord keep you, bless you. I will see you later. And go. It's not what he said. Look what he said. He said... The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. 
let's go. <laughs> Are you, it's amazing. You want these guys to go with you? You think they're going to go with you? They didn't go with him. But he said they should. That's what he said. So we're going to walk out of here in just a few minutes, right? And you're heading into your Gethsemane. Sooner or later, something very significant like this is coming. And Jesus has gone ahead of you. He's going to fight with you. He means to have you at his side. I think that's what Gethsemane means. I want you at my side while I fight my battles. I do the decisive work. You don't save sinners. I save sinners. But I save them through your mouth. So I want you with me. So, instead of saying, see you, I'm going to go do the work, he says, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's go. So I'm going to Minneapolis, and you're going to London or wherever you live, and, and we're going with him. And if you stumble, he never did. He never did, and he never will. And he keeps saying, come on. Let's do this. Let's pray. So, Father, give these men such a sight of Christ, such a sight of you, Father, that the prospect of being invited to your proximity while you do warfare in this world for the salvation of men and women, being invited to walk with you suffer with you, die with you, may that prospect be more attractive than all the fleeting pleasures of the world. May our hearts, may these men have hearts that are so tuned to what true and lasting pleasure is that they will choose reproaches suffered for the Christ over the fleeting pleasures of this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.